0: listening to the Cattle Station Classroom podcast, where we learn about the North Australian beef industry and answer your questions. So, it doesn't matter how far from town you are, because we're bringing the classroom to you. Welcome back to another Station Sticky Beak episode. This series was created to share an insight into why pastoralists do what they do, given their circumstances, whether it be location, country type, rainfall zone, infrastructure, ownership model, market, or any of the other many factors influencing management decisions. In each Station Sticky Beak episode, I'll chat to station owners and managers about a range of topics, broadly covering country, infrastructure, cattle, and people to show that there are many ways to achieve positive outcomes for people, livestock, the land, and business. So, let's get into it. All right, before we get into the episode, just a quick heads up. This episode was recorded when Bliner Station was being managed by Matt Wood and Matt had been there for about 13 years at the time of this recording. He was in his final few months at Bliner because um, he and his family have now moved to Wave Hill Station which is in the VRD region of the Northern Territory. So uh, Matt and Connie are still working for Jumbuck Pastoral. They purchased Wave Hill last year and as a part of that Matt and Connie have gone across to manage that and get that going. So this episode um, was recorded in late 2021 when um, and is basically Matt's thoughts and um, experiences from his 13 years at Bliner. It is now under the management still within the same company Buck Pastoral but um, the incredible Jamie Larison is back at Bliner so he's a long-time Jumbuck Pastoral man and hopefully we'll get him on a Station Sticky Beak episode soon enough. But, um, yeah, the information is just as relevant and, oh, my gosh, just so much to learn from having a yarn with Matt. I love I love this episode, so I hope you enjoy it too.
1: G'day, I'm Matt Wood. I'm the manager of Bliner Station, which is located in the West Kimberley, about 120 k's to the west of Fitzroy Crossing.
0: And what kind of enterprise is Bliner Station?
1: So we run a high-grade Brahmin herd and we're heavily geared to the Indonesian live trade.
0: How big is the station?
1: One million acres, almost exactly.
0: And how many cattle are you running on here?
1: 24,000.
0: Is that 24,000 breeders or total no, head?
1: Total head. So I have uh, 10,500 mated females, uh, open age cows, and then an additional 1,900 maiden heifers.
0: And then everything else is offspring?
1: That's right. The balance. Yep, and yeah. we grow our own steers and heifers out here, so that's probably pretty key to note. So we don't send heifers away to grow them out and we finish our steers here ourselves. And when I say finish, I mean we get them up to boat weight.
0: And how much range do you get out here?
1: 28 inches, so 700 mil.
0: So at first start, we're going to talk about country. So what? tell us about the seasons out here and the country type.
1: Uh, very reliable wet season where we are here. Um, we've just three years ago, we had our worst wet in 25, uh, which was, you know, the country really felt it. So it's a reliable rainfall belt. And we normally start getting early storms here in November, but we don't really get any green feed away until the first week of December on average. And we get rain through, through till March, end of March, we might crack and knock them down storm in April and then generally nothing. Through till the, till the following November.
0: What are the main feed sources out here?
1: Uh, so it's a real, real mixed bag at Bliner. Um, some of it's good country and then there's some ordinary stuff as well or lighter carrying country. So we've got a, quite a mixture. We've got some good heavy black soil, which are ribbon grass and bundle bundle are the main sort of, you know, main species on that. Bit of flinders, not very much Mitchell. And then, we, as the soils, uh, go back to sort of cracking clay rather than black soil, sort of yellow clay, that's generally ribbon grass country. And then we've got some, uh, wattle and spear grass country as well, uh, spinifex country, and we've got a few small creek systems through the place and a swamp.
0: So what's the better country, like the, the, the black soil, yellow? The black or soil,
1: red? the black soil is the best. Um, However, uh, having a balance of country in your paddocks is pretty important to, uh, you know, create the cattle sort of spell the country themselves fairly naturally then and you're able to, black soil is slow responding to rainfall. So, whereas your lighter sandy soils come away with an inch of rain.
0: So when you came here, what were the paddocks like? And then when you've been able to put in or, or amend infrastructure, what, tell me about the country types you're putting in your paddock.
1: So, uh, Jumbuck. I've uh, had Bliner for nearly 30 years and they've always been conservative stockers first and foremost and I've held the view that each paddock should have a balance of country which is in contrast to how a lot of places operate so we try and design our paddocks to have a balance of country they'll have some black soil they'll have some light timbered red soil and you know and we try and balance it out like that obviously that's not practical all the time um, you know there's there's but we try and make sure that cattle have got somewhere to go during the wet season to get up off the black soil and that they've also got some good country in it to to lean on through July, August, September.
0: So in terms of like a large-scale rotational grazing, instead of moving cattle to different paddocks, are you finding that they sort of move themselves within the paddocks?
1: That's the exact idea, Steph. So rather than sort of mustering the cattle all through the wet season and swapping paddocks and reorientating them, which can be painful with small calves at foot, and that's when we have our big calf drop. Uh, we like the cattle to basically spell the country and rotate through it of their own accord. So in the, in the wet season, so sorry, first storms in November, December, the cattle will go to where the green pick shoots, and that's up on the red soil. And then as that country starts to dry out, we'll generally throw a match in parts of it. We do sort of a three-year-on burning program and the cattle will stay and use that grazing up on the red soil in the lighter country, spinifex country as well. They'll use that through the early stages of the dry season, sort of April, May. And then the, the black soil would have had a chance to fully regenerate, go to seed. All the, all the perennial butts would have gone to seed. And then they move back onto the black soil where those real good quality grasses are. So I'm talking about bundle-bundle, flinders, et cetera. And they're able to um, use that country through the back half of May, June, July, August, September and sort of carry right through towards the end on those.
0: How far of a migration are we talking when they're kind of changing country types? Are they walking like 2 k, 20 k. A
1: A bit of everything. So most of our, our biggest paddocks here are 250 square k's and our sort of smaller breeder paddocks are around about 100. So there's a, quite a variation. So sometimes, you know, cattle might be living... We try and position our boars on the edge of good country and the lighter country, so that's the sort of halfway point to encourage them to use the lighter stuff.
0: Do you find that... I mean, obviously, this has been going on for about 30 years, so I'm wondering back in the day, obviously, before your time, if when that was... When the cattle were first here or this strategy, like if you needed some kind of... Guidance and something to kind of get them into that pattern. I'm, I'm guessing now it's just habitual for them, and having those older cows there that know what to do every year, they're passing it on to the younger ones. That social structure must be really yeah. Important. So
1: you, definitely. So you, you're um. We actually we don't have many paddocks where we've got uh, an entire group of age group cows. So they're generally bred mixed through the herd. So heifers sort of grow up with older cows. So in general, we've got a few little trials, which we'll talk about later, where we've got them segregated into age groups. Um, but we've got quite a lot of that going on, and we think that's very important for um, sort of socialisation of cows, so how their little social structures work, you know, their, their little nursery groups and things like that. Having some older cows that, particularly on some of our country, which gets a bit flooded over on Kimberley Downs, older cows that know how to get up out of floodwaters is very important and uh, having that, those old girls mixed that have seen a couple of big floods, having them mixed through the herd is, you know, pretty vital.
0: So coming back to your feed sources, would you say it's mainly the grazing head downs? Do you, do you rely much on any top feed, or do they use any top feed?
1: Yeah, so we've done a lot of dung sampling over here at Bliner over the years to improve our supplement program, and we were all quite surprised to find out that they actually consume about 20% browse, which is far more than anyone would have thought. So that's mimosah bush, burnt wattle and all sorts of stuff. So browse is an important part of cattle diet.
0: Tell me about your fire strategy.
1: So we have a, um, a bit of, it's twofold. So we do some early dry season burning, which gives us another flush of, so we burn rank feed that's sort of, you know, of no value to cattle uh, while there's still plenty of subsoil moisture and generate a short pick of regrowth. So that's, that, that gets cattle, it sort of prolongs the wet season. So those, all those annuals come back again and you know, they're, they're able to have seeded and come again with that burnt country sort of brings it all on. And then we have, um, a fire break, which is pretty handy when you're in the Kimberley. We have a lot of trouble with people setting fire to the Kimberley at ridiculous times of the year and, that causes us all sorts of grief and plenty of wasted time putting out bushfires that have been deliberately lit, and having big swaths of country with that are sort of natural fire breaks that we burnt early in the year, we find a very important part of our management. So, and then we we move that fire break that line across the, on a sort of a three year rotation, and there is some country we don't burn at all, so we well, we try not to.
0: Why Why would you not burn some country at so all? So
1: heavy black soil country requires that sort of, um, I suppose it's a little bit like mulch, having that sort of dead grass on top to hold the moisture in it. Um, not advisable. You're better off working that country hard with stocking pressure and then letting them leave it during the wet season. That's a better way to run black soil than to burn it all the time.
0: So high animal impact. Yeah, that's right. The urine feces uh, and down. and Hooves.
1: That's it. Break yeah. up the soil on the top so it doesn't go hard.
0: And so that end of wet season burn, that's a cool burn?
1: Yes, that's right. So, and if you do that too much, you'll promote woody weed regrowth. So it's all a very delicate um, balancing act. And I've been here 13 years now, and I reckon I've got it reasonably sorted. But my, you know, my, uh, I suppose you'd call him predecessor, the guy that he was my sort of um, senior manager when I first started managing here, He's got you know a lifetime of experience managing stations in the Kimberley, and you know he's been a big impact in you know passing on the lessons he's learnt regarding fire management, stocking density, and uh, and that strategy of letting them rotate themselves.
0: When you're, I know you've you've put me onto a website NAFI, which can kind of show you where some fires are. Is that the only? I suppose, technology you use, do you use like Google Maps or satellite images or something to kind of see where you've burnt and
1: No, NAFI and, and Landgate have reasonably accurate sort of fire scar patterns and then we're able to overlay them over our maps and we're able to have a pretty systematic sort of approach. So, you know, and there's, there's times when fires overlap a little and it isn't quite perfect. Um, you know, they've... We're sort of banking on winds and, you know, our fire management, you know, it's not a perfect science, but we think we've got it reasonably right now.
0: Is there ever a time and a place for a hot burn?
1: Absolutely. So very important to the the Kimberley landscape's been burnt hot. That's how it's become what it is. So the time before there was stock, you can imagine that the uh, natives walking around did a lot of fire. You know, they were burnt for hunting purposes and lightning fires. In the early dry season, storms would have torn through all this country before there was, you know, when there was a bigger, higher fuel load, you no know, stock. And it's important to let that happen occasionally in a controlled way to clean back your um, your woody regrowth. Otherwise, our trees will just get thicker and thicker.
0: So, for you, is this just a you're keeping an eye on things as you're driving around the property and deciding if and when? Yeah, every well, of I, years. I light
1: some paddocks up. I light areas up in November. You know, I'll know there's a rain. You know, reason. I don't know, but I'll have reasonable confidence that there's a rain coming, uh, not too far away to put it out. And I'll have a look at my winds, and I'll go and go and light a firestorm and light some country up.
0: And if not, you've got the grater ready to go.
1: That's right, or 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 I'll blame someone else. (laughs) Lightning.
0: What about rangeland monitoring? Do you do, you said you've been here 30 years, Jumbuck has had the place, sorry, 13, Jumbuck's had the place 30. Do you have any photo standards or objective measurements of country over time to track how you're going or do you take so, any measurements? So
1: we we obviously, the um, Ag Department come and do their warms monitoring sites here and they give us feedback and photographs. There's plenty of information there if you're looking for it and we generally rely on, you know... The guy that I report to, the director of Jumbuck, Cullen McLaughlin, he's been looking at this country for thirty years, and he knows he can see you know instantly when we've been going too hard in a certain area, or if we're sort of underutilizing our grass. So that's how you know. And you know, I've been here thirteen years, and the company's general manager, Jamie Lyrason, has been here over thirty. You know, in the Kimberley, and he, you know, there's some. It's pretty hard to replace that kind of knowledge, and. Uh, it's also, um, you know, a photograph. Without knowing the full story, doesn't always give you all of the uh, the facts.
0: That so, is a very, very good so, point.
1: So I think you know, being able to explain and understand why a country may be looking how it is, you know, there's a whole there's a whole variety of things that come together. Do you,
0: but, you find the warm so WA rangeland monitoring site or no? system, or whatever the S stands for, do you find those reports useful at all?
1: Yeah, they're they're, there. You know, like, again, it's an objective thing, you know, and you've got to put the, you have to put the um, background knowledge into it as well, and, you know, like, they, they won't know that you might have been, you know, run a portable yard somewhere, and that's why there's some flogged out country in a certain spot, and, you know, those sorts of things.
0: Does Blina have any issues with feral pests or large large uh, herbivores or even smaller non-herbivores? I guess.
1: No, we reckon that the wallaby numbers are starting to get up a bit, um, but we've been we're very fortunate here We're not not troubled by donkeys, pigs, camels, or wild horses.
0: So the impact of the wallabies is just,
1: over, just more over, grazing Overgrazing, yep. yeah, and uh, and they're able to get right down to the root, and, and whereas cattle can't.
0: What kind of regeneration or landscape interventions have you employed at Bliner?
1: Well, we do a lot of erosion control on fence lines and roads. So I'd say we're one of the few operators. We have a have a full time loader driver through the dry season that operates year on Bliner and then a year on our other station meter. And his primary function is erosion control. So putting in hundreds of woeboys and little levee banks uh create a bit of pondage and, and pull up eroded gullies and fence lines, and make sure our roads aren't are going up rather than going down. And we obviously lighten numbers off. We're constantly looking at our stocking rates in certain paddocks and giving paddocks a break that, that, that they need it. So we're constantly changing that, you know, and maybe we might sell a few, sell down a bit harder to accommodate that in certain years and, you know, in other years we'll be able to hang back.
0: So the woe boys are to slow the flow of water down.
1: That's right, and so also
0: anyone perhaps going a little too fast in a motor car
1: does work on them as well. Does,
0: and when you say you're, and so you're working to build the roads back up rather than down. So rather than having these big wind rows on the side of your roads, you're kind of pushing that all back in and building. Yeah, the road back trying to
1: crown it up so that the water runs off the road and back out into the paddocks rather than channeling down the road.
0: And when you say ponds, is this like the traditional water ponding and like the horseshoe no, shapes or just no? Something? So this
1: is just. Um, it's more an extension of like hard country off these breakaway gullies and stuff that we've created off an old fence line. And, you know, we're, we're dealing with, um, erosion that was sort of caused bloody 70 years ago. So we're fighting. So, you know, in some instances we're fighting, you know, over 50 years of poor grading practices. You know, when, when I came here, there was plenty of roads that were over a meter deep and, uh, We've had to bank them off and let them regenerate, build new ones alongside them and other areas we've had to save those roads. And, uh, you know, we've, we've poured a lot of resources and a lot of money into trying to fix that. And the, the people that I work for are very passionate about making sure that we're looking after our land country here at Bliner and that we're not, not adding to the damage and that we're reversing that 50 years of poor management.
0: Leaving it better than when you found it. That's right. So, can you describe to me, sort of paint a picture of what this, um, these sort of ponds that you're building along the fence line look like? Cause I'm, no,
1: not they're just, quite so alone. they're just an extension of the woe boys. That's all. So, they're just an extension of the woe boys in that scalded country. You go out a little bit further and let that water pool so that it, it um, sits there and goes, penetrates rather than, Running on past. Okay, so, so a if woe, woe, woe boy a bit too cut. Yeah, yeah,
0: like way longer than the actual yeah, than okay. the road. I yeah. did notice that coming in on that road from media. So, well, I noticed some of them just went a little bit wider than the road. But I'm guessing they're the ones that go even, how far out from the road are we oh, talking? Well, some
1: of them go out 80 meters, and some yeah. of them only go 20. It sort of really varies, and you know, and there's time and financial constraints as well. And but there are areas where we've made the woe boys very expansive to pull all that water up so it penetrates.
0: How do you decide? But we're, but
1: we're not really ponding so to speak, in paddocks, no.
0: When you're building a woe boy, so I guess there's a couple of different options here. You've got the height of it and then you've got the width of it. So whether it's kind of short, sharp and tall, like a little pyramid, or if it's a long, big kind of like flattened out bell curve, like how do you, what's your preference for that?
1: Oh, look, it needs to be um, over the actual road passage. It needs to be wide and quite a slow gradient, um, and that's where the bulk of your material comes from. We actually just generally sharpen them up Have when they get first built they because they, that's more efficient to build them up higher and just crowd crown them up like a pyramid because the cattle walk all over them. They love them. They play them on the wet season and they just sort of roll them out themselves over time. So almost all of our woe boys out in the paddock start crowned up and the cattle do the rolling out for us. Yeah,
0: so it's not like when you're in a parking lot in town and they've got those little metal ones that are supposed to stop people from speeding, like where they're quite... Sharp, up high, and quite—I guess the depth is not very.
1: No, we need we need truck and trailers to be able to roll over and reasonably well. And there's roads that only Land Cruisers go down. They can be a little bit sharper, but it's obviously a lot of gear damage if you you know if you've got two sharper woe boys. So, but they all erode, and you know, poor grading practice only takes one slip with the grader, and you've cut it down a couple of inches, and that all adds up.
0: What is So as we finish off the country section, what is the biggest limitation of the country here at Bliner?
1: We just haven't got good quality enough grass. So it depends when you say the limitation, and if you're talking about being able to produce more kilos of beef, it's because the large variety of annuals on Bliner aren't aren't as high quality pasture as what they could be.
0: And uh, on the flip side, what is the biggest opportunity for the country type?
1: Um, I think we've got... We've got a real balance. We've got a mixture of, of country, which I think gives us a bit of an advantage. So it's not certainly not the best block, bit of dirt in the Kimberley Bliner. Um, certainly not. It's, it's just a sort of average piece of country compared to a lot of the blocks around here. But we make it work.
0: All right. Let's move on to infrastructure. Talk to me about fences and water points.
1: Fencing here, you know... Pretty basic. We've sort of got back to doing three barb with strainers, concrete at every 400 metres, well-built assemblies with angle stays out of heavy wall pipe, sort of everything we do infrastructure-wise, we want it to stay a long, long time and we're happy to spend the money and the time doing it right.
0: Is that three barb internal and boundary fences? Oh,
1: yep. Yeah. So the only only stuff we build with four wire now are wiener paddocks because we want them to learn to respect fences very well, and we actually cable all the corners in the wiener paddocks now, so that they're, um, you know, the, the wieners learn from an early age to really respect fences.
0: And why three barb? Is that just a efficiency and cost saving yeah, measure? Yeah. Like
1: three, three. You know, if they're going through three, they're going through seven. I reckon. Like three, you know, I sort of, I reckon you can. Three is just a, the right number. It's a, you know, the efficient thing to build, the, um, you know, best bang for your buck. And we find the fourth wire in the Wiener paddocks is not so bad because they're, um, you know, they're generally heavily grazed the Wiener paddocks, but we find that the fourth wire sits in a lot of grass for a lot of the year. And that, you know, every time they've got dew and condensation on it, it's not helping with the rust. burns heavily.
0: Whereabouts are you placing your water points within paddocks? Are they on fence lines or in no, the middle? No, we try and
1: avoid that. So we try and, you know, they, we've, we've got plenty of places where there are old bores that are on fence lines, but all the new stuff we do, we try and poke right out off the fence lines into areas that, you know, the cattle can use a proper grading radius, so...
0: How far apart are we putting these water points?
1: Well, we're a bit more than most of your corporates. So, you know, where they're sort of working around 3K grazing radiuses, we're more like seven. We reckon that Brahmins, we run high-grade Brahmins here, they really use the country. And I reckon that's sort of a, you know, I often, and I'd I'd probably say frequently see Brahmins 10, 11Ks from a watering point here at certain times of the evening or early morning, and they're happily feeding along. So they use a lot more country than you think, one of the big advantages of Brahmins. And we think that, you know, rather than sort of overdeveloping a station by putting waters every three k's, better off buying another block.
0: Would you ever, I know of a station that they're doing a trial with these uh, sears, I think it's sears, C-E-R-E-S tags, and they're kind of like little GPS tags. You put on your, in your cows and you can see, like, on a satellite map or how far they're travelling, what they're doing. Would you ever, just for curi- like curiosity, put a few in just to see how far some of your cows are going?
1: Uh, if someone was happy to pay for it, right? So, like, I know that these things walk a long way. Brahmin breeders, you know, drive you out there this evening and I'll show you Brahmins seven or eight Ks from a watering point. So, they, they walk out and they use it, especially if you use a bit of fire to lure them out there, like green pick, certain times of the year, um, lick. Another way of luring cattle out. So, I, uh, you know, I think that you're better off leaving a bit of fat, fat in the bread, you know. You bloody, if you sort of develop a place to that point where you've got water every, every, you know, where you're using every spare, you know, stand of grass, you'll have sort of nothing up your sleeve for that tight year that comes along. And we find they do better where cattle, you know, cattle just do so much better where they're, you know, where the stocking pressure is a little lower.
0: Talk to me about your water point setups, uh, troughs, turkey's nest, do you have a preference? I mean, sorry, tanks, turkey's nest, dams, do you have a preference? What's yes. your balance?
1: Um, tanks. So quite, I actually, turkey nest, we haven't built a turkey nest in nearly 20 years at Jumbuck. Uh, evaporation and seepage through the ground. There's situations where you've got really good holding soil. Uh, where, where they're not too bad. But the evaporation and seepage is far more than most people know. Uh, tanks are the go. Dams, dams are ongoing maintenance because you really need to actually fence them off to give your stock a clean drink. You need to f- fence them off and pump to a tank and trough. Um, so yes, you catch it, but I think the big thing that's been a uh, dams are where you can't find water and you build dams, like if you can't find sub artesian water then you're looking into the dam options but the advent of you know you know well the sort of not really the advent but as solar pumping technology has become so cheap so efficient and so reliable you know the, the cost of dams have just gone up and up and up earth moving gear and People sort of don't realise that dams are an ongoing thing. You, you sort of have the wing banks spread for the dry year and then you get a big flood and you blow your wing banks out and occasionally the dams silt up even though you've got flumings in a fourth wall. You've got to clean them out. And unless they're fenced off, you've got cattle drinking pretty rubbish water for three months of the year.
0: And potentially getting bogged and getting dry bogged
1: times. and more labour having to go out there and check them out. So we've all been there. There's, Blind has got about 15, 16 dams on it and I've got quite a few of them fenced off now, but I've spent a lot of time pulling cattle out of dams here.
0: You designed a custom sort of tank structure set up with Pioneer water tanks. Tell yeah. me about that.
1: So um, we, we had a contractor come to the Kimberley in 2010 with a poly welder and using sheets of um, HDPE poly, like dam liner, and repairing old, old tanks. We thought that was a pretty good idea and we did quite a lot of it, bought our own welder and taught myself to weld. And then decided we'd start building new tanks with this as the, rather than buying liner tanks like Rhinos and, you know, no disrespect, but I think all the tanks on the market are basically a Coke can with a garbage bag in them. They're very lightweight, um, and they won't be there very long. So what I've got now is a sort of heavy duty 12 panels. Uh, they are a 160,000 litre tank. Called a cattleman's tank and pioneers sell them they're um with a two and a half mil thick hdpe liner the downside is you've got to weld your own liner in them and that's not everyone's cup of tea but it's actually quite easy i reckon learning to weld poly weld is actually easier than using a stick welder
0: so sorry, what is the outside of the tank made of? Is that still some kind of metal or Yeah,
1: so it's it's hot dip galve steel, three so mil. The same as a box.
0: regular tank. It's, so it's no, like, no, no. So
1: it's like um they're panels and mesh. So it's sort of like seven vertical like seven horizontal rails and a two point four meter um panel. And so then the mesh, mesh is
0: the outside? Oh, yeah. so because I've seen so it's
1: rail. It's like it looks like a cattle panel, like yeah. a cattle yard.
0: Yeah. So because I've seen a picture of this tank, and I thought that was like a special little cage outside the tank. So that is the tank. That's and the, the frame. The solid bit I can see inside is the liner. That's right. So what's so tell me about this liner versus the other liners?
1: So you can repair it. So we've had them. Um, we've had that liner here since 2010. and We've had never had any troubles with them. Um, if it, as long as you weld them up right, and it took us. A, there was a couple of little tricks to getting that right at the start but you can go and repair a hole in your tank in a couple of minutes with just grinding up and welding over it. If someone put a hole in the outside, it's very durable. It's UV-stabilised. The frame's going to be there forever, and it's actually relatively easy to do, and it's it's pretty cost-comparable to all of your other current market tanks.
0: And so the liner compared to... what? So what's the difference with a regular liner? Are well, they're, they
1: just... they're basically like your sort of blow-up pool liner. You know, they're yeah. very, they're very flimsy, very light. They're making them better and better. But at the end of the day, bloody, you can poke a stick through them, no worries. And, uh, they're, they're suspended by a bloody frame, which is no, no different to a Coke can. It's a bloody very thin, zinc a um, sheet. I reckon they're just rubbish. And I know our tanks will be there for a long, long time.
0: And so your liner, especially because your frame of your tank is this mesh, it's being exposed to the sun from the, and the elements from the outside. So it really, yep. And you know, so you're 11 years in with the first one that you built and it's really standing up.
1: Yeah, there's not a blemish with them. So they're not showing any signs of degrading. And the actual liner part only costs about $2,500 per tank in material. So if in 20 years we need to replace the liner, no big deal. That's but a... the frame, the frame will be there as long as I'm on the planet, I'm sure of it. Like they hot dip galve and they don't touch the steel, uh, the steel doesn't touch the ground. So they're up on a concrete ring mound. So they don't touch the dirt or water at any point. They're sitting on a concrete frame and I, you know, I think that being hot dip galve, they'll be there forever.
0: Where did you get the idea for this from?
1: Oh, just, you know, uh, basically sort of, adapted, I'd, I'd heard of people sort of using, um, you know, just yard building mesh or reinforcing concreting mesh and I'd seen a few jobs like that that had been done and ours is just a little bit flasher and a little bit longer lasting.
0: Very cool. I I thought for all the pictures I'd seen of the tank that that cage on the outside was like, so if a camel came, you know when you see camels and they've like put their head down and kind of mushed a tank, I thought that's what the cage was to stop no. that. But we're all learning something in this episode. All right, troughs, length, depth, what are your preferences?
1: So um, I reckon that the 1,800-litre northern stockwater troughs are about the ticket. So is that, is that that's a
0: concrete trough?
1: Concrete trough, yeah. main thing with troughs is the, uh, they've got to have a square square base. We've actually gone away from having extensive guarding like steel railing to stop cattle getting in the trough because quite often that once they, a calf gets under that rail, they can't get back up. So having a square bottom that if they do fall over in there, they can stand back up easily and hop out and you've just got a dirty trough but no animal in it. And, yeah, concrete seems to last the, the length of time. Everything else just doesn't last as well. And it has to be very well-made concrete. And right now that I think the northern stockwater troughs are about the best pre-fab trough on the market, probably half the troughs on Bliner are ones that we've poured ourselves. So they're very similar to a northern stockwater trough that concrete poured on site into our own formwork.
0: What about the the depth of them though? I've been seeing a lot of different size and shape troughs on my travels and sometimes I've seen some that are crazy long, like you think you are like big, I guess almost like watering a droving mob on them like they're so long and others are quite deep and some people say they like that because it keeps the water cooler others have it quite shallow because then it's easier to clean or i'm not i mean it's it's all different what what do you aim for
1: oh look i reckon the what you know somewhere between that three and four hundred mil deep is about right and you know more so more important than the actual trough is the delivery to it you need a big you can get away with a slightly smaller trough as long as you've got a big volume of water coming through. So we plumb all our troughs here in three-inch, whereas most people are sort of inch and a half or two. But we make a real point of doing everything three, so that cattle are never wanting for a drink. And that that's expensive. Like pipe, float heads, southern cross float heads are three-inch bloody expensive as.
0: Are you, when you're doing that though, you're also working out the number of cattle you're going to be watering and so That's how right. Much water. So there's and horses for courses, and the capacity but we, you know, of the tank. we
1: You also want to build something, if you're going to build something that's going to last you 30 years, it might have a different duty down the track, so you just build it big and you build it strong and you build big flow, you know, right from the start and you'll never look back and the other thing too that, you know, needs to be done is a good quality apron around the trough, so so the cattle are able to stand on a good level concrete apron out of the mud while they're, you know, having a drink. How Uh, far
0: out should an apron go?
1: And I go out two metres each side of the trough, so they're... You know, a full-grown cow or bull can stand with their back feet up on the apron as well.
0: Is there a key to keeping a trough? It's obviously, troughs and areas where cattle camp up, and there can be a fair bit of erosion there. And it just they can yeah. You got to try. And, you have to
1: try and get like you know. Obviously, you're limited sometimes by where your bore is, or you know your geography. You, you water doesn't flow uphill unless you pump it, Steph. So you, we need to. You know, you need to keep all of that in mind, but we try and put our watering sites on fairly hard ground that's not going to be too fragile and turn into a dust bowl. We want them away from fence lines. That's pretty important. You've got a fence near a trough, you'll be fixing it plenty of times.
0: Can you explain that to well, me?
1: Well, it's just cattle camp there, you know, bulls fight, and you know, like if you've got, you know, it's just a, it's a matter of probability. You know, if the fence, if the watering point where the cattle congregate and Late, you know, that's where they come together to chew their cud and sleep and hang out, mate. All of that happens. Bulls fight. If it's just out on the flat with no near a fence, you'll have no trouble. But if you've got a watering point where a fence right next to it, you'll be fixing that fence lots.
0: And just out of curiosity, any thoughts on whether, like, I know obviously here they're uh, rectangle water troughs, but sometimes we see round ones. Is there a difference?
1: no? I just I just think that the rectangular ones are you know efficient way of getting a, a large number along them. Um, you know, sort of bang for your buck for materials and, you know, I just sort of personal preference, I suppose. All right. Easy to clean.
0: Talk to me about your cattle yards and in particular the set that you've built right near the homestead.
1: Yeah, so I was pretty fortunate. Uh, most people don't get to start from scratch with their cattle yard, like their main yard. So back in 2012, I was able to design and then, you know, spend the money on building a really big set of yards here at Bliner Homestead. So we do all our weaners here. We do all our, um, probably about 80% of our sale cattle come out of that yard. We do all our dry stock, like heifers. You know, most of our control-mated heifers come back through there. You know, it's a busy yard and uh, we've sort of done it with overkill. So there's a sort of pound draft with seven ways off that and then five ways off the head bale on a cable draft system um just a really good flowing yard which is basically a combination of all the good stuff I've seen in cattle yards in my career so I've, I've been fortunate enough to work a, on various stations and then in a couple of contracting camps I've seen a lot of yards and uh I sort of know what I like you know the big thing that I think Budget constraints are the thing that hold yards back. It's not being able to just fit them in there. It's being able to work them and uh, having nice big yards where cattle never feel like they're tight or bunched up just makes uh, cattle flow so much easier. And, you know, people and cattle love it when they've got a yard that flows and uh, not having to, not having to sort of jam them up to fit them back here. That's a, you know, you know, economics often gets in the way of cattlemanship there and people end up shortcutting the backyard a bit. Make it a little bit tighter here, and do without this, and do without that. And I was fortunate able to start from scratch, and, and, and you know, with a good budget, and we were able to build a really, really good set of yards.
0: What are some of the things you're really paying attention to when designing the yards, like a gates? You know, do they swing both ways, or is there a certain way you want your gate to swing? Are there certain latches that you think are safer than others when you're, you know, chains and latches or yeah, self Yeah, we just closing? do all
1: chains. I think there's nothing that beats a chain. Under latches often get bent or or they can spring off if hit by a beast. Whereas chains, a well-welded up high-tensile chain will, you know, you'll 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 be unlucky to have that snap on you. Um, probably a big thing's man gates. We're big into our low stress stock handling here, and nothing sort of more annoying than um, having staff that are learning do a really good job of penning cattle up into a pen, letting them up, should I say, into a pen, and then they shut the gate and then walk through them and just stuff up that whole mob mentality that they've done, you know, everything they've taught them as they move up to the next yard. So man gates so that people can get off the cattle and get away from them is really important and just, you know, Training and educating staff to pressure and release, and then making sure that they're not inadvertently pressuring cattle when they think they're doing nothing.
0: So, uh, say I put cattle into I'm, I'm moving them up through the backyard process, a uh, series of yards, rather than what if I want to get back to the crush, rather than walking through the yards, I've just yarded them up, I can step outside. So and it's to go stepping around
1: wide, that's right. Yeah, rather back. than
0: climb, well, I guess the alternative is you climb over the fence, but we also know that's putting pressure on the cattle too. Well,
1: it's a, it has a little bit of pressure on them and it also knocks people up. They're always going to take the easy option, aren't they? It's human nature, like by human nature we're lazy and we try and do things <laughs> the easiest way that's possible. So, you know, that's why I've got to cut an extra gate in the yard so the easiest thing for them to do is go to the right spot.
0: Yeah, fair enough. I think, yeah, it's interesting with the predator-prey thing there as well, though, that, you know, out in, out in the paddock, or maybe not so much here, but maybe back in Africa days, the predators are up in the trees jumping down on them. So I always think that one. In, in saying that, though, I hear I was climbing over the, the gates, yes, or the fences yesterday.
1: So it's like you can't have man gates everywhere. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that, you know, building yards, you know, with it, and being, you know, being able to sort of build them big, so that they, you know, cattle aren't tight. Particularly Brahman cattle, they hate being tight, and uh, that sort of stirs them up. So we make a lot of an effort to only sort of, you know, we build these big yards and then only half fill them.
0: So when you've got, say, everything's come into that first yard up, or maybe you've got all the gates. So when you yard up from a muster, do you have a series of yards open so they can not just come into that big pen up yard, but they can come through a bit? Well, you don't, want them,
1: um, you don't want them potentially sort of piling up anywhere. So we have some big yards opened up, but they sort of can't get blocked up in that. So we we as the cattle are being yarded, a horse goes through and shuts that gate off and then the next gate and the next gate and all of that. So you don't... You don't want to have when you're yarding up. You don't want to have tight spaces for them to get to. I I don't believe anyway.
0: And so when it comes time to move (laughs) them up through the yards for processing, each yard that you're going through, which traditionally gets a little bit smaller each time as you work your way up to the force and the crush, you're half filling those yards to capacity.
1: That's right. I think that's the that's the trick. If you can, you know, it's easy for me to sit back and tell you this. Here, we've been able to build yards on a good budget, and you know the person paying for them understands what I'm saying. And, uh, and agrees with it, and not everyone's in the same position.
0: But even if you weren't, even if you've got somebody else's set of yards to work in, the idea of half filling your yard so that there's not too many in there, and then you're not taking to a t- point,
1: but you still got to get the job done. done. Right? You know, so there's so there's it's not about. Um, and it, if you can if you can do that, if you're fortunate enough to do that, uh, generally what happens is people run out of room. To put their drafted cattle into if they're only half filling yards. So they end up jamming up the last half of them and that's where all the, all the savages come from. You know, they're just reacting to being tight. So it's easy to be critical and say that you should do it, but you know, but some people just do not haven't got the resources to build yards big enough for that. But, Fair enough. You know, but I, as a rule of thumb, if you can half fill a yard, you'll have a much better time putting them, they'll go in there easier and they'll come out heaps easier.
0: What sort of technology and innovation have you employed on Bliner?
1: So, you know, I suppose solar, solar pumping systems, you know, a bit of a no-brainer. Um, that's been a massive, you know, shift. I think when I started at Bliner, we had 33 or 34 windmills, and now I'm only running about 13 or 14. Uh, so they've all been converted to solar, plus another 20-odd bores that we've... New, new installations that we've put in have all been solar. Uh so solar tech, very important, spot trackers for staff safety, um, you know, I reckon that the little personal leap herb that is the spot tracker is a bloody really simple and easy way to keep an eye on everyone, and sort of gives everyone a bit of a safety net, and then, you know, in more recent times, FarmBot, for so water monitoring. So FarmBot, uh, using satellite comms, were able to monitor our tank levels, and then have them plotted on a graph and tell if water's going in, water's going out. And that might correspond to wind, what time of day it is and pumping, uh, animals watering, like the pressure from that. So we're able to have a reasonably good idea how full a tank is and that cattle are watering. And uh, you can you can do that while you're having a coffee in the morning. Uh, look on your phone.
0: How has that impacted your bore run and the position of having a bore runner?
1: Well... From sort of August onwards, we used to have uh, we used to have to be at every trough here through you know twice a week minimum every three days. It was sort of a you just couldn't leave them long enough. So having bigger storage and more reliable systems has obviously been helpful as well. But knowing that something sort of eight if you're tracking something, you know it's seventy five percent full. You're, uh, you're not driving out there because you know it's going to be low. You know, you might be able to leave it for another two days before you send someone out to start a generator or, I just say it's been a massive time saver and, uh, you know, done so many empty miles in a land cruiser to get out to a tank that wasn't that low, because uh, you were worried about it. And, you know, we, we've done so much driving around checking water because we weren't sure. So you still need to go in person at least once a week, make sure the trough's clean. Farmbot doesn't clean your trough, it doesn't strain up the loose wire, and it doesn't notice the sick and injured cow over here, and doesn't notice that the lick bags are nearly empty. It doesn't pick up some rubbish that's blown out of some tourist car, but it, it, uh, you know, we're just able to sort of target our, be a bit more efficient about our bore running. So we've gone from basically three full-time equivalents at Bliner, eight years ago, to, uh, you know, so I'll probably say that we've gone from two and a half full-time equivalents back to one full-time equivalent in the last three years on the back of farm Boy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They
0: charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and
0: fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think that's a great way to wrap up the infrastructure section. So we'll move on to cattle. You've already said that you've got high-grade Brahmins. Tell me about your mating strategy or your breeding strategy.
1: So um, what we do at Bliner and across Jumbuck, is that we control mate maiden heifers as two year olds and time them to calve in the optimum time of the year, which is the start of the wet season. So for us here in the West Kimberley, we want them dropping in December, late November to December, onto green feed, and then carrying them through the dry, and we're able to wean those in the sort of first two months of the dry season. So, so we control mate maiden heifers. They get preg tested, so they go a bull put to them in February middle of February, and uh, that can be a bit of a challenge too if there's a cyclone going on or very wet conditions. You know, we're often sloshing out there on horseback, walking these bulls out to these heifers. But we find it's very important to getting them to carve right for their first time at the right time of year. And then they get preg tested in the end of June, and the cattle that are pregnant and due to carve in December get spread out and distributed amongst the herd. Uh, so they're a good-looking heifer, good temperament, all of that. She's also fertile. She's in calf and she's going to drop it at the right time of year. So that, you know, there's some big chicks, And we generally get about three quarters, you know, 78% of the um, cohort that we join fall inside those parameters. So the bulls go out there for about 16 weeks and... With the preg test being good to about six weeks, right? Rectal palpitation—it's really only a ten week detectable joining. So that's three cycles, three to four cycles per heifer. So we're getting three quarters of them in calf in that little tight window. So we're putting a fair bit of pressure on these heifers. But that's—we think that's good. Join a larger mob, put a lot of pressure on them, and you'll—you know—and sell everything that doesn't make the cut. Then they go out to the herd and they're continuously mated thereafter.
0: So up here, nutrition is a major limiting factor and a wet rebreeder or the second calf is the hardest one to get in a cow or a heifer's lifetime. So they're control mated for their first calf. Uh, Anything that is pregnant goes through the the system and is put out with the rest of the cohort. Later on, anything that doesn't fall pregnant as a maiden heifer, is she gone? One chance you're out. Yep. Because obviously that's the easiest time in a way for her to get pregnant is absolutely she's not got a wiener on her.
1: So she, she needs to, she needs to get over that first hurdle um, and then, you know, get out to the herd. So, so we, we class them out some beautiful big heifers that don't manage to get in calf, no value to it.
0: And so when they come back in the second year, and they should have a second calf on them. So they've if they're coming back in, it's no, they
1: should. We see them again in the first year. They should have a weaner on them, right? So they go out in June, out to the herd, and they calve that December, right? That's their first calf. The following first round, April, May, June, they should be yes, a so, wiener Yes, sorry to they,
0: that. Yeah, and they should be pregnant though. Well, but that's a well, hard one.
1: You'll only get, we're fighting, you know, 25 to 30% of those will get pregnant and yes. have a wet rebreed. That's the, we're just limited by that, by our nutrition here that there is only, you know, we only see a wet rebreed in heifers of sort of 25 to 30%. Yeah. Some years, if it hasn't been a particularly kind wet season, as in maybe it's been a bit light or it's a bit too big, maybe it'll be as low as sort of 18, 20%.
0: So when a cow, or sorry, when a heifer comes back in with her first wiener and they're all preg tested to see if they've gotten in calf as a wet re-breed, you know, gotten in, gotten in calf with their second calf? We don't,
1: don't preg test all of them. It's only in certain situations mm-hmm. we do that. Because we, we know that we're only going to get 20% of the Exa- calf. Yeah. So you can put your hand up the other 80 and then go, all right, I've got a wiener mum here. She's given me a calf. because we're on pretty ordinary country, she hasn't wet re So what am I going to do with a wet wiener mum now? So they're putting you know, it's a it's a balancing act between putting so much pressure on your cattle, if you sort of if your parameters are too tight you'll end up with no breeders. Exactly. So, so you're better off with some super cows that are wet rebreeding and a few that are only giving you a calf every second year and having the overall job overall herd performing well. So
0: Yeah. So that first year when they are first joined if you don't get in calf, you're out because you've got no pressure on you. You should be able to get in calf that second year when you come in with a wiener... Or
1: you might have just been a bit light. So the reason why they don't get in calf is they just didn't quite mature enough. Just so didn't
0: hit puberty. Yeah. did hit.
1: You know, Which they didn't. They didn't. You know, they weren't heavy enough at time of joining, and they just didn't quite get, get that. it. So that, I mean, that's,
0: that's your tail end of your mob anyway. That's
1: right. So they've they've got to go.
0: And so that second year, when they're coming in with a wiener and you're not protesting testing all of them, but you know some are. If very... they're empty,
1: so if they're dry and haven't got a wiener...
0: Oh well, yeah, that, then they're gone.
1: Yeah. Like... So mostly, so there are situations where, like I just said, no good selling them all, otherwise you're not, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to achieve anything. Yeah. So in certain situations, if it has been, I might give a few another chance, especially if they're a bit light, but. Most, and that's, that's the, you know, the value of being able to make decisions on the spot, on the day, having your manager in the yards. You can make those calls to the best of your ability. But I am, I definitely preg test them. And we generally find of that 15%. So if you've got 100 heifers that go out as PTIC, right, and are supposed to carve in December, only 85 of those heifers will bring you a wiener. We know that. And, of that five percent will be empty, empty. So they just definitely sold. And then there's ten percent there, so ten head of that hundred, who are, have somehow lost their calf, haven't brought you a weaner, but they're back in calf. And that's the one you've got to make the judgment call on. Yeah. Whether you give them another go or whether you send them on their way. And for me, it's kind of I just sort of look at the overall cow, I look at her outer vagina, how she how she her top line looks. Uh, whether she's showing some sort of signs of, you know, so big dewlaps or high, um, high sort of tailbone, things like that that might make me go, you know, I just think you're not a breeder. And I'll, and I'll crack her off. So there's 10%. So in, we know this from the work we've done at Bliner. Of that 100 heifers that go out to carve, 85 bring back a wiener and there's 15 that are dry. Five are just empty all day long. Sell them, no questions. And then there's 10 head that you need to make a line ball judgment call on.
0: And so those 85% that come in with a wiener, not all of them will be pregnant again. No, only only about
1: 20 to 30% 30, of them will be.
0: So that other 70%, though, is not necessarily get on a truck and goodbye to you. It's we understand why you haven't come back with the second baby because it is a huge challenge. So they kind of get like a year's grace. That's right. But then after that point, when it's time to come back in in that third year...
1: So when they're an adult cow, I'm just preg testing I'm looking for cows that are empty. So if she's quite clearly a breeder, she's got a big udder, you know, good loose vagina and the skin between her udder and vagina is loose, looks like she's had calves, I won't preg test every dry cow. But cows that are very fat and tight in the udder and vagina, I'll be looking to preg test them and make sure that they're in calf. And every year I get a couple hundred empties out of them. And... In addition to that, I get some that are maybe four or five months in-calf, but I decide to sell them anyway because they don't look like they're producing. So I don't have them all on a nil system or anything. I'm just making a judgment call and using my experience to look at that animal and go, you're pregnant, but I don't believe that you're bringing me any wieners, so I'm going to sell you.
0: Is the goal, I mean, it's fairly unrealistic to assume you'll get one calf per cow per year.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Is the goal like one every eighteen months, every one every two years? Is what's
1: good enough? Well, what enough? we want we want our herd to achieve about seventy five percent, and that's what we have been doing for the last five or six years at Bliner. seventy five percent weaning rate. So, out of a thousand cows, they bring you seven hundred and fifty weaners, not calves, not pregnancy tests. 750 wieners to the yard.
0: Okay, and so it's sort of like a tap-in, tap kind of like a relay race, like, oh, I've had my turn. You know, so there, there's, always, there's always going to be a small percentage that aren't bringing it to you, but as long as it's not those same ones. If it's the same ones every time, then they're on the truck out That's the right. door. yep. But the others, you know, you might just have a bad year or have a day, and so they're kind of taking turns. They all – you you allow for 25% to not bring you, but they need to be different cows each time,
1: each yeah, year. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So – and, you know, I think you can see some pretty, there's some very obvious barren cows that are visible to the eye that aren't bringing your weaners. And, you know, that's, you know, I'm, we're currently weaning pretty well. The system works pretty well and we're not preg testing every beast on the place and we're not having to, you know, record hundreds of data points. It's a pretty basic, simple setup and it's relying on, um, you know, my experience with this station and with these cattle. To, to keep them productive, which they quite clearly are. So there's there's many producers that are, uh, you know, doing 10 times as much work and getting a far far reduced result from that.
0: You're weaning. We,
1: we think it's very important to get them out of the yard quickly too. So, um, you know, we can quite, with this system where I'm sort of preg testing every third or fourth animal that runs past, you know, those sorts of things, we're able to, you know, we're able to have, a mob with 1,100 cows plus progeny will be back in the holding paddock by three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, you know, we'd started at daylight, and they'll be out in the holding paddock grazing cows and calves at three in the hour. A couple of truckloads of weaners have gone. That—that's what we like about it too. So, you know, not having to sort of keep cattle locked up in yards and fed hay and whatnot.
0: To clarify, is your weaning rate calculated on the <laughs> number of weaners branded? out of the number of cattle joined or out of the number of preg-tested in calf?
1: So it's out of the – definitely not out of preg-tested in calf, right? So it's out of – obviously, with this sort of country, you might muster here in first round and you'll get a slightly different muster than second round. You'll have a slightly different number of cows because as you're mustering along, you're cutting out the odd cow with a baby calf or there's a lame one. Something gets missed in the muster. So the numbers are never exactly the same. And – The, um, what we use is what, what we term eligible breeders. So in November this year, I'll have a cow number that I return back into paddock X, right? Now that's, that eligible breeder is every cow in there with ovaries. So doesn't matter if she's PTIC, if she's, you know, a maiden heifer, she's included in that, right? So she has the opportunity to bring me a wiener next year. Every animal with ovaries in Paddock X in November this year has the opportunity next year to bring me a wiener. Does that make sense?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? And that's one number. So I use that same number in first and second round. To
0: bring you a wiener or to be in
1: <coughs> No, to bring me a wiener.
0: Because she should already have, she should be ready to drop in November if she's going to bring you a wiener next
1: year. So she should bring me a, so that number is the number that I use divisible by that to bring me the, so that's the total amount of mated female, like, you know, females exposed to a bull. That's the weaning rate. So some of them are heavy in calf and some aren't in calf. But it'll average out that that's the number we use. Do you understand?
0: No. So because what what's out in a paddock in November this year should be the weaner they're bringing you next year is already in their belly in November. It's not the one they're going to conceive in no.
1: November. No, no, that's right. So, but they're, there's some that are pre- like, because they're continuously mated, stuff, mm. So you, you have to understand that. So there's some that are heavily in calf. So what number would you use? So this is why I always throw it back to people. Yeah, no. They can't. Well, this so is why I ask you, because I want to learn too. So it's, we use the total number of cows out there in November. Mm-hmm. That will be the number that we divide the wieners by the following year.
0: So if you put a thousand cows out this November.
1: Yep and you get 700 wieners during 2022.
0: Yeah, okay, so 70%. the year... Oh, no. No, so that yeah. is next year. Yeah. But that's only a few months later. What if... But you might have... Wouldn't it be the number of cows you put out this year? Remember
1: that we go through and we sell some cows in first round, right? And you sell some cows in second round. Yeah. So it's too hard to keep f***ing around and trying to find a number again. Right? Like you spend the whole day trying yeah. to, oh yeah, I took four out of here and 15 out of this mob and yeah. three out of there. Because wouldn't it be? So just go, right, it's just a number at November, right? To the number now.
0: Wouldn't it be like you put a thousand out November 2021 and it's what you wean into? Early twenty twenty three, when you're pulling, well, they're all
1: pretty static, so it doesn't really matter. Oh, right? okay. So well, that, I guess the that's 700, what the seven hundred. The seven hundred stay in Egan's paddock. Stays seven hundred in Egan's paddock. Yeah, that's okay. how we stock it. Okay, that makes so sense. It so it's really a number change. So the right? number you're
0: exposing to a ball,
1: because otherwise you just tie yourself up in knots trying to work all this out. Yeah, you're going to, if you're only going to count the pregnant ones, you're tugging yourself.
0: Yes. Yeah. Right? Well, that so, was the point you know, I was getting a, to. So because... we don't
1: we don't do that. You know, and some people only count the wet ones. Yeah. Right? So we just use the figure that's in there in November at the you know end of November 2021 will be the number that the total weaners or calves or clean skins, whatever you want, branding result or weaning result, divisible by that number.
0: Yeah, because basically that would...
1: Want- and that's a static number. So that number is roughly 700 head year in, year out.
0: Of Wiener, sorry, or of, no, of cows, like yeah. in the breeder. Paddock. Yeah, okay, so which so that's more or less saying the same. It's you're using almost the same the number of cattle that we're in at 2020 in November 2020 and November 2021. It's pretty much the same number of cattle that are going yeah. back so out. So we
1: we put our so maid, works out maiden in, yeah. heifers put back in there. Yeah, right. We put our maiden heifers back in there um, to replace cattle we've pulled out. So yeah, we keep that paddock running along at 700 breeders. Yeah. That's okay,
0: I think it kind of works like either way we'd be getting the yeah, same Yeah, because otherwise,
1: you know, otherwise you, with a continuously made of herd, you know, it's ridiculous, you know, you can't actually work it out. And at the end of the day, if as long as you've got a formula and you can map how you're travelling against how you have been travelling, then that's all that really matters. I'm sure you
0: could probably put an NIS tag in and get a, um, what do they call them, a... Uh, Gallagher or something can have a very complicated spreadsheet though and there would be a way to but again this is a, I guess so preference of what you want to do and at the end of the day you are knowing how many like you've got your system and you know
1: yeah we know how we're traveling and uh, we're able to see it so so we're we're quite we think that works for us we respect that it probably you know doesn't work for some but there's so many anomalies, you know, like tree goes down over a fence, or a fire goes through, and a few wires break and turns into a bit of a cattle pad through there. So you, when you muster, you actually pick up 40 cows from another paddock. You know, all these things sort of—it's almost impossible to have a perfect, picture-perfect sort of indicator of it. So, and so the only know, way you can problem- use it, use a simple number, keep it standard, and just keep using that year in year out. You know, that system, you'll be able to track your performance.
0: So I want to – I know we've had some interesting chats before about your your views and your choice to not – so I think the only way to get a really accurate number then, like a really tight number, would be if you had every animal with an EID through a computer system and tracked them that way and did some spreadsheet wizardry. Um, but you – one thing I why I always enjoy being at the yards with you is that you know your cows so well and you've said you don't want to use EIDs because you don't need to. Can you just tell me a bit about that?
1: All, I, all I say, right, so I don't have a problem with people using mm. EIDs. I just say, show me how that makes you more money. Because if I'm going to ask my boss, hey, I think we need to put the whole herd onto EIDs so that I can tell people down the pub that my weaning percentage is actually 73% instead of 75%, he will say, all right, that's great, Matt. You show me how that's going to make some more money. Because it's a lot of extra work and a lot of extra mucking around for the cattle. For what? So uh, I, I, you know, go for your life, people that are, but you need to be able to show me how it's going to make you more money.
0: Tell me your thoughts on continuous mating versus segregation.
1: Yeah, so we've been constantly looking at segregation. Segregation is not new. People have been doing it for 20 years. Um, when I worked with the AA company over in the Northern Territory, we, we were doing segregation you know, back in 2008 over in the Northern Territory and it was seven and eight. And, you know, it it's been around for a long time then. I keep looking at liners herd and we're travelling along, I think we're travelling along pretty well around 75% and we keep looking at what we can do to get a little bit more. Like what's the next edge? What's the next thing we can do, practically do, to increase our production? And we keep looking at segregation and we keep coming back to this one little problem with it, and that is that the quality of country here at Bliner is we're limited by that. We just won't achieve enough of a wet rebreed, even if the stars all align and we give them all the lollies under the sun, all the right bloody, you know, licks and wet seas and phosphorus, everything. We're just not going to achieve enough of a wet season rebreed, and then it's like, okay, so what do we do with those cows that didn't achieve a wet season rebreed? Pretty hard to sell wet weaner mums from the Kimberley in a normal year. A line of wet weaner mums um, that haven't wet rebreed. Remembering you've got there's some that will be have calf mums because there would have been a few that calved a little later. It's never a perfect science, you know. Like, um, so. What we're finding is that people that are segregating, um, some of them that do a fantastic job and, you know, put a lot of effort in, are really only achieving 64% wet rebreed on good quality country. So that means they've got 36% of their open-age cows which are effectively on the bench until the next joining window, next January or February or whatever it may be. So those cows... They're out till the next joining window. They're not going to give you another calf till two years' time, like another weaner till two years' time. And that's a significant number to have on the bench. So you've got 60% of your herd, two-thirds of your herd, giving you a calf every year. That's great. But you've got a third third of them that aren't giving you a calf. They're giving you a calf every second year because they're missing out. They're sitting out for a year waiting for the next joining window. So what we've sort of come back to at Jumbuck is that the out-of-season calf, provided you can manage mum's weight with some lick and correct stocking densities, et cetera, et cetera provided you manage her, the out-of-season calf, we think on that 30 or 40% that would don't wet rebreed. breed we reckon that's better than no calf. We reckon there's more bang for your buck having that out-of-season calf than having him on the bench.
0: And you're about three quarters of the way through your own internal trial, so yeah, we'll that's ta- right.
1: So we just did a little trial to sort of see. So we think what we're doing is pretty good, but we're always looking at better, you know, improving. And I talk with some guys that do really a really good brand of segregation, and we constantly dug it out, but he, you know, thrash out all these little details and points. And I decided we'd do a side by side trial here at Bliner. Um, one of those paddocks is in its third year and the other one's in its second, where we're comparing a continuously mated herd, which is basically a replica of what we're doing, as opposed to a control mated herd. So essentially the same country, identical lick regime, same line of cattle, just one year younger. And that's the mob that have been in for two years. And at the moment, it's looking like the uh, continuously mated ones uh Bringing a, a more solid weaning percentage,
0: and so we'll definitely touch base in twelve months' time when you've got your final results to really yeah. nut that out and discuss you know the design and, and the results and how that all came about.
1: Also, Steph, in regard to segregation, there's a few other things which make it tricky to pull off, and you know hats off to the guys that do. Um, bloody hard work keeping bulls out away from heifers that shouldn't have bulls in them. The, you know, the commitment that you have to show to going and putting up the floodgate every time during the wet season. The commitment to go and get that bull who's jumped through a couple of fences as an outwit and is out with another mob of cows and get him out of there and take him back where he needs to be. That's a, it's a big commitment. A lot of, a lot of man hours and a lot of resources goes into that. So even in my small trial that I've been doing, I've had plenty of headaches keeping bulls out and, uh, you know, at certain times of the year. And one of the things that the segregators say is that, you know, the, the thing about it is that cow can't get pregnant twice. So where you've got bulls, bull issues, make sure that's the line of bloody, you know, you know, ODs, October, Decembers or, you know, JMs or whatever. However, only 85% of those ones that are pregnant actually go to term and bring you a wiener. So there will be, even in that group of carvers, there'll be some that are bought and lose their calf for, you know, a myriad of reasons. And that bull, guess what? He's right there ready to go when that happens. And then you've got these little things that you have to keep cleaning up all the time. And, you know, that all sort of adds up you know, it adds up significantly and uh, you sort of do start wondering, well, how much different is this to us doing a second muster like we are with a continuously mated herd? So we're doing two rounds on that. I think that's pretty important to add. So with a continuously mated herd, we do a first round in April to June and we do a second round in October, November.
0: So the cost of doing a second round of muster, needing to pull off those out of season calves, so you've got cost of... Staff, you've got helicopter hours, you've got fuel. Yep. Um, so that is for, in your perspective, it's not more of a cost than than what you would lose from uh, or potentially from having the segregation.
1: Well, there's you know even the really good segregation systems. There's plenty of cattle that come around twice. It might not be right at the end of the year, but most of them have got sort of two thirds to three quarters of their cattle are coming around twice. Because pregnancies aren't detectable even with a you know a really good wand under five weeks, you know. So there, there's a lot of cattle come around twice. So that that's something to you know. Most segregation systems don't get away with doing one only muster. Um. One thing we do have to battle with doing a second round with a continuously mated herd is mustering cows with little calves. So we mitigate that. We're very careful when you've been on our musters. We cut cows and calves out on horseback as we're mustering along, and it sort of starts on the back fence. We're always looking to leave those cows with baby at home. You know, we we will try and leave them behind as we go. And, you know, that requires a fair amount of commitment and work as well. And we're able to, you know, slow walking cattle with little calves in hot weather. And we've got to be careful in the yards with them, and we've got to be quick. You know, and then we've got to take extra care mothering them up. And that's not everyone's cup of tea either, you know. So, you know, it's sort of, it's a bit of a horses for courses, but that that's one of the things, you know, one of the main reasons why we keep looking at segregation and hoping that, you know, there's a bit of a silver bullet there, but it's not quite that simple.
0: So either way, there are complexities and... Challenges, and neither of the options are easy. But you just have to choose which flavour you prefer.
1: That's right, and uh, you know every business and every situation's got you know the got a little J curve, the law of diminishing return. You know, and you can you can do sort of no management and go this well, and you can put a bit more effort in with a bit more costs and a bit more effort, um, and you'll go a little bit better. And then then you sort of start getting to that sort of sweet spot where you get a really good bang for your buck. And if you go past that, the law of diminishing return means, you know, you might, you know, turn your whole world upside down to chase another three or four percent weaning rate, and that's kind of where we think we're at with this segregation thing at the moment. We're probably not going to go much better than now, uh, the way we calculate our seventy-five. So we're, you know, that's why we're doing this little side by side trial that we are.
0: I want to ask you, how important is the ability to protest test and spay to your operation because particularly in WA there are some real limitations with accessing that service. Um, how important do you think it is for people to be able to access that?
1: Um, I think it's important the, the ability to make those on-site like on-site decisions by yourself without having to, you know, have a vet or whatever out there or someone else doing it for you, it's pretty pretty handy. You know, like, you can make those decisions on the go, and especially where you've got wet cattle involved. So lactating cows that may have calves involved, when you're talking about splitting them up different ways, it's not all that easy to stockpile wet cows until you've got a big enough number for for vet to come back out to. So that's why I think it's important. So the spaying we do at Liner is around removing older cows from the system and cows with poor udders, cows with poor temperament, or out of type cattle. You know, they'll be a bit cro- you know, have a little bit of shorthorn in them or black, wrong colour, brindle or something like that. And, you know, maybe a buggered udder, two bugged udders, we're able to remove them from the herd like that. So rather than sort of stockpiling them somewhere, we're able to spay them on the day and then put them back with their calf. Finishes raising the calf, it gets weaned, then she gets fat, and then we the next time we touch her, we load her on a truck. Pretty efficient.
0: Though what the things you just mentioned there about being out of type or having a, bug, a buggered udder, is that what you're looking for when you're culling as well? Or do you have I know some people have a certain age or when cattle hit that age they're out? Absolutely. What so you... we
1: we we don't really want breeders here past ten. You know, like we'd like to keep majority of them under 10. So I've got a handful older than 10, but we, we're, we're always at them by that stage. So we're, we're wait, we we generally catch them up somewhere on the lines, but they have a year off, sell them as a PTE, or we, um, you know, or we spay them down 10, 11 years of age on.
0: So what's the idea behind 10 versus 8 or 12 or 15? Well, we
1: think that 10 is just a sort of, that's when they, they're... Um, you know, the, the gaps, the intercarving interval starts to get larger. So it has more of, a, more of a sort of impact on them, like producing a wiener sort of drags them down half a condition score, more than it used to when she was in a prime. And, you know, there are, there are some exceptional cows, like it would have only been in the first round this year ago. I had a 15-year-old cow who was uh, probably score one and a half, had a big wiener on her, and she was three months in calf. There's some exceptions to the rule. And being able to make those, like, decisions when you're on the job, that's what's important. Good on you, girl. Have another year, you know? So this is the thing. We think that spaying down from 10 means that you're getting 95% of those cattle, you're getting them sold off the station at a great weight before they've shelled out. So you're getting a good economic return for her. Uh, Having 14- or 15-year-old cows that get to a point where they just sort of really start wasting away and become untruckable, there's no value in that. So we, we think it's important to sell down while they're still, you know, heavy frame and have the capacity to fill that into a fat condition score. So holding on to cows, dragging them out for another few years, you know, end up getting stuck with cows that you can't move.
0: What is the normal weaning weight here when you're pulling off a weaner? So the first round is about
1: 220, 210 to 220 kilos, and then we're back around about 185 in the second round.
0: And what about the tough years?
1: So we do, we have, we had, like I said to you earlier on today, we had an exceptionally tough year in eighteen nineteen, and we had to do an early weaning program in the second round there where we pulled down to about 75 kilos. So we're currently doing an early weaning, we were pretty impressed with that, with the results from that. And doing another little side trial at the moment where we've been continuing on with that.
0: So weaning down to 75 kilos even when the year's not tough.
1: Yeah. So just here at Bliner, just been trying to do that. So it's and we're, you know, compiling some data together there. Um, We should start to see that reflect, you know, an increase in production from from doing that. We're getting sort of, you know, calves off mum six months earlier than we, around earlier than we otherwise would.
0: And that's resulting in better reconception rates. Is that what you mean by an increase in production? Yeah, more wieners. Yeah. And,
1: and, and, you know, we've just got to make sure that we're getting, we're not having stunted wieners to sell. So we're, you know, so we're monitoring at that moment. We've had a couple, you know, like it's not a, it's not a clear cut science, but we want to have, you know, we want to be turning off cracker steers, not sort of steers that are just scraping on.
0: You mentioned lollies earlier. What supplements do you feed out here and what times of year?
1: Yeah, so we do phosphorus wet season program, which goes out early storm time. Um, and they're able to access that through the wet season. We aren't able to go out and add lick to those points during the wet, so we get it all out before. Um, uh, it's just not logistically possible. And then once the season starts to turn a little bit in June, we start a dry season program, uh, urea. So we sort of start that off on around about 26% urea, urea equivalent. And then it ends up around 35% by October.
0: And is that increase just to adjust the... the...
1: Control consumption rate, really. So we want them to, you know, we sort of harden that lick up as the season prolongs.
0: All right. Let's move on to the final part of the station Sticky Beak, and that is people. Talk to me about what, I guess, Jumbuck's approach is and your approaches to managing staff and the non-negotiables when it comes to training and education.
1: So... We've done, um, you know, I started managing when I was 23 and I've been managing for 13 years. And what I thought was good practice when I was 23 is fair way different to what I think is good practice now. So I've learnt, no one sort of, you know, no one knows how to run people really well when they're, you know, when they're a kid themselves. And I think that we've learnt that... Uh, they're our best and most valuable resource. Staff. We can't do this job without them. So we've got to put a lot of effort into all aspects. We've got to get effort, put effort into finding and recruiting good people. We've got to put effort into training them. We've got to put effort into sort of fostering and keeping them interested and keen. We've got to put effort into making this any kind of environment where they want to live, and then. Keep them around for another year or the year after. Get a few out of them. Um, offer them careers and career paths. All of that's so important. So, and it's a big, you know, it's a big, uh, it's a big complex sort of issue. And it's not as simple as paying people more money, right? We've seen we've seen the sort of resources sector go and do that, and I think that the best paid people, you know, aren't always the best workers. You know, it's like a you've got to inspire them, give them little responsibilities and challenges and, you know, there's some people that just don't sort of fit this lifestyle. Um, One thing that is quite special about the station workforce is the fact that everyone's living in each other's pockets. So being able to get along with other people is a really important skill for everyone out here. So... You know, if you're sort of a person who's easily offended about, you know, how the bloody, how the cutlery's arranged or the bloody, you know, where how the laundry looks, you're probably not going to fit in on a station, you know, where you've got shared facilities and where the same people you work with, you socialise with, it's all quite tight.
0: What are the opportunities for staff at Jumbuck?
1: Well, we like to promote within our own. Most of our head stockmans and managers have come up through our system, so... Uh, and we're quite proud of that. So we want we we you know we encourage people to come with us, and we we'll, we'll build them up through the ranks. If they want to go away for a while and experience another company, we're we always send them off and and leave the door open. And we get heaps come back. Training wise, we've always we always put a bit of effort into into those things that matter. So we do a horsemanship clinic. We have in the past done some low stress clinics with Jim Lindsay. I mean, trying to get a few more happening in the last two years, but COVID's put a real dampener on all those sorts of things. Um, we've done welding courses and chainsaw courses, you know, and it's, it's really, you know, formal courses is one thing. Um, but giving people on the job training and challenges, I reckon is actually more important. So giving, you know, a horse, all the horse schools in the world are great. But giving someone a young green horse and then helping them to turn that into a competent stock horse, you know, that that's 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 where it's at, you know. Give them a chance to break in horses and build them up. That's where it's at. And then next year they want to come back and work them again. And they're fiercely proud of them. Um, same with, you know, all the, you know, the concreting, building tanks, trough, fences, those sorts of things, giving people challenges and opportunities, and giving them all a little bit of ownership of certain aspects of the station, you know, Getting someone to make sure that that's their little project—that's, uh, you know, I reckon that's a re- real key. People need to feel valued, and and uh, you know, being valued by your boss, bloody important to your well-being and your attitude.
0: Are your employees able to use station horses outside of work hours for, say, like leisure riding and also to compete at local events?
1: Yes. So. Leisure riding is not really a thing that happens much. A um, few people go for a ride around the swamp, but they spend a lot of time in the saddle here. So, they, when they've got time off, they try and be away from the horse. Except the camp drafts and gym Carneys and things like that, I live for that. Um. We do all we can. We encourage them to nominate station horses. We truck them in there, set up the yards with them, and you know we sort of you know we do all we can to foster that. My wife and I. Where you know We love camp, our camp drafting and rodeo and all that, so we're, we really encourage our staff to get involved with that as well.
0: How do you manage the balance of... This is a, a busy, high-intensity working environment, uh, generally fairly high workloads. Sometimes it's not your usual nine to five, and so days off, it, it's very variable in this industry whether or not people have... Well, how often and if and when they have days off, what does it look like here?
1: Yeah, so you know, at EA, we, we try and give people a day off, or at least a half day off every every fortnight, as per our enterprise agreement, and you know, it, we've kind of got to pull up when it suits the program, you know. So we we say to these guys, look, you want to get to Halls Creek Rodeo and Camp Draft? Do We want to be at Derby Rodeo. Do you want to go to the race round in Broome? What are, these are the events are on. Which ones do you guys want to go to? Can't go to them all. Let's target, like, what's the vote, you know? Let's target these, and we're going to have to work like shit to get there. And it gives them a common goal and some, you know, we're all striving towards something. So people don't mind... Um, they, I, I think there's, you know, a key thing to note about managing people is people don't mind working hard as long as they can see you working with them and, you know, you're setting a good example and leading from the front. And they don't mind working hard But good people will not tolerate working stupid. So if they see their supervisors being head stockmen and managers making shit decisions that make things do it the hard way or take longer than it should have or forgetting key details that mean things don't work properly and they have to go back and get something else, that really irritates good, clever staff. And, uh, you know, I I think that's, you know, being organised as a supervisor... Like, being really well organised is critical to keeping your staff happy. I don't mind working hard as long as they can see you progressing and you're getting shit achieved.
0: How long would you ideally like to keep someone in the stock camp for?
1: <coughs> um, I reckon two years is about right. Um, and then they probably need to go and learn from someone else. So I've had different people, uh, you know, some need three or four to get there, others sort of get there in one. Um, we're all a little bit different and, some people just require a little bit more time, you know, depending on what's going on in their life. They might just be a bit of a slower starter but end up finishing stronger. And that's something I've learnt. Um, they're all individual. And uh, being able to read that and, you know, push people just hard enough is, uh, is pretty key. But I, I sort of I encourage some people like to have someone stay and work for them for seven years. But I think that it's better for them to get out and experience some other things. And they get a more rounded and, you know, they get a more balanced opinion of it all.
0: This industry has a fairly high turnover rate. And if yeah, people are moving around semi-regularly, with the, I think, with many places, the way the work program is structured, it's sustainable for a year or two. But what do you think about that in the long term, then, if you're only... Um, Getting, you know, rodeos and camp dress off, uh, I suppose it's different for you or if you or your wife, you need to go into town for a doctor's appointment or you, you want to make a hair appointment or have a psychologist appointment. I don't know, you just want to have enough, you know, do, take time off. How does Steph, that work? I've when never you stop? made
1: a hair appointment in 13 years. No.
0: Looking at your hair right now, I can tell. <laughs> but I think it's a different level of autonomy between managers and in the stock camp. And if you give up your autonomy for a year, it's one thing to, you know, but as you get older and you perhaps don't want to live in a donger and you want to have a few Absolutely. more things around, how does how do you think Look, that think um, I think, it's, uh,
1: I think it, you know, it's stages in life. So people, um, you know, generally the ringer's life suits single young people, right? And then after a while they want to have a partner and they want to have a house and, you know, we don't always have the accommodation for that unless they want to be a head stockman, unless they want to be an overseer or a leading hand. Sometimes we do. And maybe they'll go, hey, you know what? I can see light at the end of the tunnel here. I see the house that Matt and his wife live in. If I can dug it out a little longer, I might end up in one of those, you know? So I think trying to be flexible as an employer and employer is very important with all that stuff. But we've also got to be realistic, you know? Like we don't have the option to accommodate 15 families here. That that'll never work, you know, and they'll and it won't work because they won't have enough to do, you know, of their own interests. Um, so I think it's just a bit of a balancing act, you know, and it's, again, horses for courses. But I, all I can say in my experience of managing, one thing I've really learnt is that, you know, people, as I said before, people, you know, good people, nothing pisses them off more than like. Poorly organised supervisors, things like that. So, and poorly organised programs. So, you know, if they can sort of see, they're happy to work hard with you as long as they can see things getting done.
0: So, just to clarify, you're not expecting. You don't think it's a, a expectation of this industry to keep someone in the stock camp for six, seven, eight. Nine, ten years? No, I reckon
1: four or five's plenty and then you're ready for a head stockman's job. You know, I think that's a very old school thing. You know, people used to be sort of 30-odd, 35 before they got a head stockman's job. And, you know, I used to cop a lot of flack for getting a manager's job so young and, you know, from those sorts of people. And I just think it's about runs on the board and getting results. You know, like, at the end of the day, some people, it takes them a little longer, but I don't feel the need for someone to have done you know, eight or nine years service in a stock camp before they're ready for a head stockman's job, I reckon they've kind of got it or they don't.
0: But if somebody doesn't want to progress, if they're happy being... It's like if you're at a hair salon and you just want to be a stylist, you don't want to own the salon or manage yep. it. If you just want to stay in the stock camp forever, uh, is it realistic at some point for people to... for those people to have family, like or is it just always going to be a young person, single lifestyle kind of thing? Oh, it doesn't. I don't think it doesn't really weird. suit.
1: I don't think it really suits how we currently roll, no. you know. Yeah. So and you know, being camped out in the swag for a couple of months of the year away from home, that doesn't suit many families, you know. So and it's the sort of choices you got to make. But we've got plenty of mechanics and foremen and operators in the company that have have families, and you know, it just depends how how hungry you are for it and how badly you want it.
0: I've got a few quick questions to ask you before we wrap up. What is the biggest challenge that you face in your business?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, We seem to be constantly under attack from, you you know, sort of social licence, you know, people with sort of no clue about the industry having plenty to say about it. That's one of the challenges. Um, second one, staff. You know, like, as I said, we need good people. And we have I've had a great little purple patch in my career in the last three years where we've had massive, massive staff retention and just a real great bunch. And, uh, you know, with so many coming back, it's just set a benchmark for the culture of the place and it's been a very enjoyable thing managing it here. So <clears throat> I think retaining staff and finding, recruiting good staff, you know, that remains a big challenge. So, you know, things are pretty good in Australia. And Australians, as the world knows, plenty of them don't want to work. So, you know, physical work. sort of. A lot of there's this sort of thing in Australia where parents pressure their children to go to university and get a degree and then people finish their degree and then they want the CEO's job next week. Thanks, I'm, I'm ready, I've got a degree. And uh, sort of, no one wants to sort of work their way up through. That's not a popular path to follow anymore, rightly or wrongly, I don't know. And then other challenges. You know, I think with another thing with our staff, you know, we need to make sure that these towns and stuff up here are good places to go when you get some time off. Uh, you know, we've got we had some real headaches. You know, in in North Australia at the moment, we've got some towns which aren't actually that fun to be around, bloody bad sort of alcohol and social problems. Um, you know, we've got violence and bloody, you know, drug problems. We've got, you know, lots of unemployed people which are making these towns not that fun to hang out in. You know, there's sort of, you know not helping the situation. And it's sort of hard to get some head stockman, young head stockman's partner to want to come and live up here and, you know, go and work in a hospital as a nurse where they get spat at and things like that. I don't even know if you want to air this, but, you know, those sorts of things. It's kind of like, you know, I think that's a challenge.
0: I'm just impressed that you haven't mentioned the government yet.
1: <laughs> no. Um, the ag department, um, you know, I, I just think there's... There's more cattle in the shire of Rockhampton than there is in the East and West Kimberley combined. That's actually a fact, and the reason is because of introduced grass species. Um, you know, there's there issues stem with developing the land and getting the most production out of it. They boil down to environmental concerns, legislative concerns, native title, massive issue.
0: You may have just answered the next question, which is if you could be boss of, like, the world for a day or of this industry, what is something that you would bring in, like a, a something that you would change?
1: I think I'd, um, I'd... I reckon I'd change what you're able to do on a pass list.
0: If there was something that you would... To, that needed to be booted out, let go or left behind, what would that be?
1: Red tape.
0: Final question. What is a non-negotiable for you, whether it be in business, life?
1: I don't know. Hats off in the kitchen. I reckon would probably be one. I don't know. It's a strange question. I've never really... Oh, treat animals well. There you go. Treat animals well.